Modern Times, the making of Latin Quarter. Get up, bang, bang, go on, drip. Okay. At first I had, mm, get up, go on. So yeah. you just move the get up, and it's so much more effective. When I, when I listen to it, I think, gosh, so many good songs here and fantastic guitar playing. <laughs> why, why is, it, why is he so negative? guitarist, Richard? Oh, some, yeah, whatever. I had to sing more emotionally. I listen to Nomzama sometimes, and I try and convince myself it's not as bad as I thought it was. You become more emotional than you were in yeah, the time. So I cry every time I hear the bloody thing. We argue about who wrote the bass line. I think the bass line's brilliant. I insist I wrote it. He insists he wrote it. This is about memory. I'm sure I wrote it. Chorus, when he sang it to me, I thought, Jesus, that's good. I hate you. How can you be so good and I couldn't even do it? How do we ever expect to get played on Radio 1 when this song is about an interracial industrial fight in a, in a, in a French car factory? I mean, it's not, it's not going to work really, is it? Welcome back. My name is Christian Thies and this is part two. We are telling the stories behind Latin Quarter's first album, Modern Times, which the band started working on in 1983. The band members are with me, Steve Scaife, Steve Jeffries, Richard Wright and Mary Carew. Plus, we have a few friends from the band here, the Latin lovers, among them Michael McNeil, who started as a fan and now also writes lyrics for the band. In this part, we start talking about the individual songs from the album, such as the title track, Modern Times. Latin lovers, give us some of your favourite lines from Modern Times, the song. Michael? It's the actual lines of this, when I first heard the song, because at the time I'd started writing my own lyrics to try and write, to try and write my own songs, but wasn't getting very far. Um, I actually had to go and track down one of my teachers in school to go, I don't understand all the words in here. What's the big bear? What's the altar? I didn't know. So I actually had to go and speak to somebody go, I need help understanding the rest of the, the narrative. Lines such as... Well, that Big Bear beat deep after Yalta. I'm like, okay, you know, don't know. <laughs> I need to find out. We, okay. we were often accused of being uh, music for Guardian readers. Now you understand why. <laughs> yeah, I just I only did the football results on the back of the sun, so. <laughs> right. So get up, go on, grip that stand. Press your hand to your heart. Big Mac is asking the questions. And this is only the start. Martin? Choose your lines. Big Meg is asking the questions. I had no idea what it was all about, but the German edition of Modern Times had uh, German explanations. Yeah. So I learned a lot of all the words and, and all the figures and in, in, in the uh, lyrics. Uh, and I learned, uh, improved my English a bit with that as well, with the whole album. Okay. Roger? Sorry. Big Mac is asking the questions, but then what follows it? And this is only the start. I mean, this, this was, the whole song I felt was absolutely captivating. It was a just wonderful start to a wonderful album. And um, right from the, not published on the lyrics, but the voiceover that comes right at the beginning as the music fades in, you've vilified me before the American people. It just, just sends tingles down my mm -hmm. spine even now. Yeah. Karen? Now Mac come on hot and noisy in his search for aid Uncle Joe as he tracked down to Tinseltown for boys, Idaho. I mean, the thing about that is yeah. that it's, it's true what Michael said. I mean, Uncle Joe is a reference to Stalin. But, I mean, yeah. you know, you're going to know that. Boise, Idaho. I mean, it, it, that's there because it rhymes. And it's obviously in the Midwest, you mm -hmm. know. But he could, I mean, it's... Although, 
It's funny. Uh, one of my friends from America was born in Boise, Idaho. So she th- oh. she probably thought we were writing about her. Yeah. I mean, for me, <laughs> yeah. the when I first got that lyric, I do. I don't have a, a photographic memory, but there's certain things I do. Remember. I remember getting that lying in bed. But for me, I would often not read the whole lyric. So certain things would jump out, and for me, it was just get up. Okay. Get up, go on, you know, all the, this kind of stuff. And I actually remember this song. At first, I got it. I didn't have it as it is. At first, I put it, because at the moment, it says, get up, bang, bang, go on. Okay. At first, I had, mm, get up, go on. So yeah. you just move the get up, and it's so much more effective. But I remember at first having, having the get up, you know, w- with the synthesizer. Mm-hmm. So, so that's all that, you know, for me, as uh, writing the song is more about the rhythmic things rather than what the meaning of the song was. Yeah. Because often, and there's some, I mean, I know what that song's about because I, 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 I'm a Guardian reader and I did know who Uncle Joe was, for instance. Yeah. There are still some songs of Mike Jones I don't really know what they're about. <laughs> or there's many li- rhymes, lines I don't really understand. Yes. But it's, if there's a few, I do. But if there's something about the, the rhythm or, or just how, how, how you can make it musical or how it is musical, actually, because yeah. he writes very musically. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he tended to write to songs in his head, like an Elton John song. So he might, I don't know which song, but modern times could have been written to, I don't know, someone saved my life tonight, as far as I know. But I mean, it's, but, but if, if he's copying that in his head, he's got a kind of structure. Yeah. Because that's one thing about his writing. They're, they're, they're very well organised, you know, the, the lines. They're, they're very rarely irregular. Well, when you don't understand the meaning of the lyrics, do you ask him or just leave it to no, that? I do, I do sometimes, yeah. <laughs> well, it's not, when we get onto new millionaires. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do... Because don't you have to fully understand the lyrics in order to sing them, for example? Well, no, I, I might not understand every line. Yes. I, I, I might know what the song is basically about. Although yeah. some, well, if we go through them, we might find... I, I, like, I don't really know what Seaport September's about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got some fantastic lines. Yes. Why he wrote it, oh, we'll come on to that later, but yeah? I don't really know why, what that song is about. That's really interesting. I mean, Mary, you, you sing... A few of the songs, and you'll be singing them, you know, from the Modern Times album on the upcoming tour. Do you know, for each song, what they are about? I think we've lived with them long enough long now to, to, to kind okay. of understand Fair, them. Yeah. and yeah. Um, Well, not to entirely <laughs> understand them, but for me, I think it is very important to kind of have some sense of what the lyric is about, because... Absolutely, I would have thought so, Songs are telling stories. On the other hand, how often do we read a piece of poetry Mm -hmm. and we really don't know Mm. what it means? We just know how it makes us feel. And I think that that is very valid. And, and, you know, who understands every nuance? And, And sometimes it's about how it makes you feel, but somebody else feels quite differently. Absolutely. So I, I don't think it's essential to understand absolutely everything as Mike mm. Jones thought it in his head. It's just yeah. how it affects. So you. with poetry, mystery is also a good thing. I mean, a good poem is said to be a little mysterious as well. But if you don't understand any of it, I mean, you don't connect with the listener. So well, yeah, you have to understand some of it. I mean, sometimes I might. Okay, Michael's in the room. It might just be one line. He, he wrote the song called You and Me, right? Yes. It's the line, hands that straight upon us. Mm-hmm. Okay, because talking about a, a conflict in a relationship. I just thought that line was so good. The idea of stray, that word stray. 
that I, I, I like the song. Yeah. All the other lines are rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but that one line makes me want to sing that song because I think it's such a good line. They're not rubbish, Michael. Okay. <laughs> but, but, take it. But, but it is individual lines that jump out and say, yeah, I want to write this because there's something there that I want to sing. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the whole song. People shouldn't be too hung up about meanings, as Mary was saying. There's an initial, something draws you in initially, and then eventually you, you go mm. deeper into any poem or any, any song. And that's a great thing. If, if you understood everything straight away, it would become disposable, disposable pop, which is not yeah. what we do. Another thing from something Michael said about who was the big bear and what, what's the altar. These days, you can Google it. <laughs> when you first came across it, it might have been much harder to find out. Is this, yeah, is this a history yeah. book? What, what, how do I find this out? Today, you just Google it and you find out. So I think yeah, it shouldn't yeah. be a problem now. To lose, there's a lot of songs in references in there, a lot of acronyms. No idea. So I had to grab somebody who was studying French and German politics to explain what was going on. But that's part of the education at the time. You know, there wasn't Google. So if you wanted to learn about something, you had to go and ask somebody or... Bands like Latin Quarter would highlight stories and countries and things that are going on in the world that maybe you've, that weren't on the TV, that maybe wasn't in common knowledge. I think for me as well, I think um, I kept a couple of letters that I would send off to Steve and uh, I would just listen to the lyrics and um, just try to write down the English word. And I got so many words wrong and I would send them, send like one particular song over to, to Steve and he would correct it for me and then explain it to me. Um, I've got my people to do it, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the teacher in you. <laughs> you really corrected her letter? I don't know. <laughs> the poor German child yeah, writing That's what I was asked, and that's why I would send it off, but I... Did I really didn't respond? Have... Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Four out of ten at all. I was a nicer person than I thought. <laughs> um, and so that, that was burn again. Um, and it just because we didn't have the internet at the time, so we, we had to write letters still. So That's why her English is so good these days, no, no, you know? No, it's it's because of you correcting her letters <laughs> with a red pen. Is it with a red pen? No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> OK. So, Modern Times. I mean, the, the title is taken from a Charlie Chaplin film. Yeah, yeah. And it critiques the effect of McCarthyism on, on, on Hollywood. But it's a, it's a wide range yeah, of a, of a subject. It was a great title for another reason. Often, when we did radio station interviews, they'd often say, "Oh, um, have you got a question for the listeners?" And if, if someone gets it right, uh, you know, they'll get a free record. And I, and I thought, "Oh, okay." okay. What, what's the what, which is the Charlie Chaplin film? This is based. Oh no, sorry. You know who who made a film called Modern Times? Yes, and, okay. And so it was an easy question. So they could at least relate to that rather than say, "Who's Uncle Joe?" Yeah. <laughs> no one would have won that. Probably. Fantastic. So that's modern times. Okay, should we go on to no ordinary return? This is no ordinary return. The day This is no ordinary return. Should have taken a special. This is no ordinary return. Yeah, the line that sort of resonates with me, and it resonated about 20 years later when I. I took a new job was there's a young man praying for a passing patrol car on a street that they don't go to yeah. um I, I took a new job about 20 years ago and we were working in certain estates and then we were finding out actually police wouldn't go to certain estates we were working in and it was just it, it just completely horrified my idea that we actually got these no-go zones and um yeah so it was sort of I, I liked the song at the time and it sort of ended up echoing back and got reminded of it many years later I mean this is this is a song that educated me actually 
Okay, and what Because I had no idea this was happening. Well, it's, it's basically it's a song about the fact that at a certain point in the 80s, football hooligans yeah. stopped going, you know, on, 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 the, on the buses and wearing their scarves and then having a fight. They, they'd actually dress smartly, go on special, um, go on, um, you know, specials. specials, you know, look, look like businessmen. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, and I had no idea that this was the trend among football hooligans to be completely... Kind of, anon- uh, you know, anonymous. It, it was, and it's, it was a phenomenon. And I didn't know anything about it so when I got this. Yeah. You know, um, it, it taught me about something going on. There was a very good uh, TV play at the time in which Gary Oldman, who wasn't so famous then when he was still in in, in Britain, played one of these kind of um, kind of smart fascist football hooligan organisers and stabbing people, that kind of stuff. It's, I wonder if that's where Mike got it from. Maybe there's quite a few books about it, aren't there? Chelsea, the Chelsea gang and all that kind of stuff. There's a real glorifying thing about 10 years ago, a lot of ex-football hooligans then writing their memoirs. Yeah. And um, it was sort of become a bit of a genre for a little while. Yeah. Did they all get arrested then? No, <laughs> no. Was it admitted to what they'd done? No, <laughs> no. It was, um, I found it a bit depressing, to be honest, that it was becoming so popular. But uh, yeah, it, for a while, there was definitely a, a whole bunch of them that came out. So, so there was this train... Called like the special was that an it's called a football special a football special that was the official name, but did they go on the special? They went separately. So they would they would go on the special somehow. They would not because what you would ha- what you'd have is football specials were designed to get football fans from a city to another city so they could then be escorted from the train station to the ground, yeah. so the police could monitor the situation. But as you got more organised or hooligans got more organised, what they did is they stopped using the football special. They go they. As Steve said, dress smartly, dress more like normal people. And they'd actually arrange to then have a fight with another set of fans, but not even at the stadium. They'd go and meet somewhere else, have their fight, and then do whatever. Okay. And, I mean, some of them were millionaires. The, the guy who was leading in, was it in Germany, in the Euros and in Germany, was some kind of millionaire, a Welsh millionaire. And he was the guy head of the hooligan. These were not kind of the boys from the council state anymore. Some of them were lawyers and stuff. Some, some of the DJs fo- even. Some of the football hooligans you have, I mean, obviously I don't really want to talk about this as a subject, but, um, you know, if you're going back the last sort of five, ten, ten years, some of the people that are leading these are guys that are our age, you know, yeah. and they, they still want to get that buzz. <laughs> but they've got the money to then go wherever they like, how they like. Yeah. And Michael knows a thing or two about it because he's a football scout as well. No, this is no, this is no, this is no ordinary return. Do you remember anything about recording the song? About writing the music? Not the music, but I, I remember, actually, um, it was the one song that we kind of didn't... had a, a slight problem with in the studio. In that we, we recorded the, dem, the, the, the song as the demo had been, and I don't know, we didn't feel comfortable with it. And then I remember Richie and, and the bass and, and Greg came up with a completely different feel, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. But, and Richard didn't, I remember that. But then we went, um, but it didn't work out, and we went back to the original. So it's the only one where there was doubts about it. I think all the others, I mean, we may have had to do things two or three times, but the, the basic approach of all the others was was already established, and we didn't yeah. veer away from it. With no ordinary return, we did. So, so what, what did we end up with, with your original? Yeah, the original yeah. feel, yeah. Yeah, quite right. So traditionally, <laughs> there was not much arguing among the band about which songs to choose, how to do the songs. Usually, it was a very quiet affair. Well, I don't think there was a, there was a huge choice, was there, of no. songs to, that would actually go on the album. Yeah. So that, that, that was out of the question. You know, we, we were doing what we'd 
what Steve had written. But, yeah. um, but as far as how you were going to perform them or produce them? Well, I think that, that that's the thing. Because we were left to our own devices, really, with the, with the production side of it, you know, either Richard or, or me or Steve or whoever would come up with ideas in the studio. Uh, I mean, I even remember, I, I definitely remember the, um, I'm talking about Radio Africa now, but I mean, a little line on Radio Africa that you were singing to me and I just couldn't get it at all rhythmically, which was the little off off synth thing in the middle eight. Um yeah, and you were singing it to me. You said, "Yeah, you got to do da, da. It was that thing, da, 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 da. <laughs> and I couldn't get it at all. You couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. And then it, it kind of it kind of stopped. But there you go. It was it was kind of you know Richard or me or Steve or, or Gregor and, and Ricky Richie building up ideas in the studio really from what we already had and little production ideas. But it's uh, interesting because it start. It always starts with the, the germ from Steve's original demos mm. the, the, the definitely yeah. key ideas that kick off the process and what we're talking about is yeah production details yeah kind of yeah. extending the arrangements a little bit there was there was a time when people didn't want to use the bass riff that lovely stalking bass riff at the start of modern times mm. i said are you crazy we had a big argument rehearsing in wales mm. somebody greg i can't remember wanted to do different fields i thought it's like it must be crazy. And that's such a great, scary riff it starts with, this deep bass thing pumping along and mm. perfect for the song, the sort of menace of the song. And so anyway, that, that went back to where it should have been. So. so as you mentioned, with modern times, there was no arguing with the record company, but it was totally different with albums coming up like Swimming Against the Stream, right? Yeah. That was tough business for you. Yeah, well, it was tough, but no. they they wanted. Uh, we we wrote about twenty songs for that, or yeah. even more, and they didn't want. It wasn't just the record company; it was the management didn't want certain songs. Um, and for instance, well, the song "Your Last Show," which is on our last, album, you know, <laughs> which is probably our favorite live thing ever. Yes, um, I, I guess I can understand why to an extent, mm -hmm. but um, it didn't quite fit the the, the kind of acoustic. Hammond organy try kind of vibe on swimming against the stream. Yeah, but yeah, we we had to negotiate songs which we didn't in modern times. And w was that hard? Were you frustrated, or was it just part of the That's business? The I don't remember being particularly frustrated. Okay, I, I, I don't quite understand what I mean. I don't. We had a song called Chase Ghost, which has become Mandela's Ghost. I, I can't remember why we didn't put that on because it was a very live. It sounded great, and it was. It was I don't know why that got left off. But um, do you? I, I remember, I remember, come down and buy oh, yeah. was uh, on the kind of final shortlist for oh, Swing yeah. Against the Stream, and David Kirshenbaum didn't like it. We we, we were quite short to do with it. It, it got the chance. Oh, but yes, we I used did, it yeah. again yeah, yeah. on Bring a Rose Home, and we got it right. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it it didn't quite work. No, it didn't. Right, we were messing yeah, around. Yeah. It should be yeah. half time, or what should it be? Yeah. You know, and then but we got it right in the end. Actually, there's a song Swimming Against the Stream they didn't like called Close This Account, which we insisted on. Yeah. So basically they said to us, okay, you can put it on. But when we went, recorded it, the producer and the engineer weren't there. They were, well, you do that one. And they just left us to our own devices. They probably mixed it, mm -hmm. but they, they didn't go for it. But we did. What about Mick and Caroline? There were some discussions going on, right? As for the singing. Well, the, the, the thing was, after on, on the two songs, Nomzamo and um, Remember, when we recorded it, the record company and the management company, in their wisdom, decided that I hadn't. It wasn't emotional enough, mm. and it, I, it was too flat. So they sent me back in, and so I went back in, 
No. For every track? No, just for Namzamo and Remember. Oh. And I had to sing more emotionally. Mm-hmm. And it's horrible. <laughs> I, I really think it's horrible. What is now on the record yeah. is horrible. I, I, I listen to Namzamo <laughs> sometimes. I try and convince myself it's not as bad as I thought it was. You become more emotional than you were <laughs> Yeah, the so I cry every time I hear the bloody thing. Um, and it's a pity because it's a video and... Ah, it's it's a pity because we've re-recorded it um, with Mary and me singing, and and one of the reasons I was happy to re-record it as we've re-recorded "Remember" actually, and uh, I love the way we do that because I'm now singing it like I want to sing it. Yeah, but in those, so as Richard said, it's often best not to listen too much to record companies and management companies. Richard, did you have an opinion at the time? Not particularly. Yeah, I mean it was. Yeah, I mean if I, if I hear the album now, I can think well. I'd, I don't like the singing on that and that as much as this and this, but the other things on it, singing is really good. And I don't. Steve's so negative about it, he he professes to not even own a copy of the record. But when I, when I listen to it, I think, gosh, so many good songs here and fantastic guitar playing. Why is he so guitarist? Oh, some actually, singing on "Lovers Gone." But people say, well, okay, "Lovers Gone," you can you can kind of be weepy about that one. But even then, I don't. I've re-recorded that and I prefer how we think. There's always something going on behind the scenes. So Radio Africa, that's the the big one. Let's go into detail. What is the song about as such? Where did the song come from at the time? You won't believe this, it's about Africa. Is it really? Yeah. Well, it's, it's about in the eighties. There was a lot of bad news coming out of Radio Africa, um, and you know, it's Mike Jones. Again, there was a lot of kind of there were songs about Africa that Live Aid was working, but of course, Mike Jones comes along with stuff about you know the Ogaden and Russia and uh, hands on the purse strings of white. I mean, it's a kind of anti-imperialist, you know, political song. Yeah. But the interesting thing was I couldn't I couldn't get it when 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 he sent it to me I, I couldn't I didn't write it so actually the best bits of that are written by a guy called Ron Keefe uh-huh. the chorus he, he wrote the chorus yes we argue about who wrote the baseline I think the baseline is brilliant I insist I wrote it he insists he wrote it this is about memory I'm sure I wrote it no you didn't yeah. <laughs> I de- I wrote the verse Richard what do you think oh it must have been me who wrote it I don't know. <laughs> no idea um, and he no, wrote the middle eight. Um, and we were lucky because it, we were both writing the same key. So when when we sat together, he oh okay, so you're, I, I played this verse in the same key. But I, I couldn't for some reason I couldn't get a good chorus. And when he played it to me, yes, the chorus. When he sang it to me, I thought, oh, Jesus, that's good. I hate you. How can you be so good and I couldn't even do it? And it's funny because you know that's the song that's get, get, getting his most success, mm-hmm. and I, it's the one I had least to do with. So yeah, there you go. Okay. Latin lovers, do you want to give us a few lines? Actually, for me, it was it was the bass line, not not the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the in. one I wrote. You mean? That yeah, yeah, that one. one. Yeah, you know, it's the bass line drew me in, and then you then listen to the the lyrics, and then it's it's that double whammy of all good songs that there's a good hook and there's a good tune, but there's also a good story or lyrical content to it. Yeah, yeah. So I think for me, it was the first Latin Quarter song I ever heard. I was instantly captivated by it, and the one that really got to me that Steve's already alluded to was "More Tanks Than Food in the Ogaden." It looks like Moscow got it wrong again. And for me, what really stood out there, politics at the time was so incredibly polarised. 
maybe as much as it is now, perhaps. And suddenly here, here was a view that wasn't just one side is good, the other side is bad. Um, it looks like Moscow got it wrong again for the for the harm that the West had caused in Africa and other continents over so many centuries. And yet suddenly, you know, we weren't the only ones doing this. That doesn't make it better. Mm -hmm. But the fact that Moscow were providing tanks to the Ogden, there's to so many other places. And I just thought this was such an incredible contrast to the other songs I was listening to at the time. Um, so for me, that, that that's the couple of lines that really stand out in a, in a brilliant song, of course. Well, who else would rhyme wrong again with Ogden? I mean, it's I can tell you absolutely nobody. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's remarkable. Karen, a few more lines. I'm hearing only bad news from Radio Africa, and we just had that as well. Is there a Radio Africa, a real Radio Africa? No, no. no it's just a made up radio station. I think there's Africa Radio, but not Radio Africa. Yeah. <laughs> Shall I tell you the worst thing that ever happened? What? most embarrassing that ever happened and again i wonder if richard remembers this we did this tv in 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 france it was and it was a big kind of like a telethon i mean i know it was all afternoon into the early evening i mean joe joe cocker was there i remember yeah. being led around by his minders as he nearly fell over all the time and we kept, and we were miming radio africa so we're there and we we're, and there's there's monitors we can see and i i could see i couldn't quite see what was going on and carol was saying have you seen that have you seen that and what they had, this is French TV, this is culture, you know, the cultural centre of the universe, Paris. They've got a, a white guy, blacked up, in a, in a leaf skirt, in some kind of hut, hut you know, some straw hut, oh. trying to work a radio. Oh. <laughs> this is the visuals <laughs> for this song. And, and uh, I mean, it was halfway through, and... Uh, we complain, but it's too late. I mean, we weren't going to stop halfway through, I guess. Yeah. We can, and the re I think the radio, the record company, were very nice and very, very warm with us. I think they complained as well. But the idea that in 1986, some West, you know Europeans were so dumb to think this was a good idea is unbelievable. Do you remember that, no. Richard? Yeah. I, remember, I do remember it. Yeah. I do remember it. Unbelievable. And I remember being the drummer on that occasion. <laughs> You were the drummer. Yeah, I was just miming on the drummer because we <laughs> because we didn't have Dave and. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. You, oh yeah. The other thing about that drummer, Dave Charles, he refused to mime. Yeah. He, oh, would, yeah. he would never mime. Oh, okay. So if you ever, if, when we're doing Top of the Pops, for instance, we had to get um, a guitarist, a, a, a guy we knew. Yes. He's a guitarist from Harlem. Did you ever do a character assessment on Dave Charles? <laughs> no, not at first. I think he, no. he must have been very autistic or something. He was, yeah. He was yeah. It's very strange. But. <laughs> So yes, there we I, were. I wonder if that, that clip from that French TV is still going. Oh, yeah. Well, that immediately went through my mind, <laughs> straight, straight onto YouTube. Ah. Yeah, interesting question. Yeah. No, 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 we don't want anyone to find that. But it, I mean, it was a, it was a you know a major canal. It wasn't some you know pre YouTube thing. It was a major yeah. canal. Mm. Obviously, over the years, you you have received quite a number of messages from South Africa, such as w what do you remember, which left a lasting impression on you? Well, actually, we'll maybe talk about it later because we've got a lot of things about No Rope As Long As Time. Yes. But the thing about the, both those songs, the, I was getting messages from people who'd been in the, Amer in the South African security services, mm. you know, like policemen and, and, and soldiers, which I find quite interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, just saying that, I don't think it opened their eyes or, you know, it converted them, but, but saying how, how, how important it was to them. And one in particular said he used to listen to our stuff on, under, under blankets. 
yeah. um, and stuff. But actually, I, I don't know, I mentioned it about three months ago. I got a message on my Facebook from someone saying, well, I ho hope you're happy. You, you've caused thousands of deaths now with your song, No Rope As Long As Time. Are you happy? <clears throat> I was thinking how, I'm not sure how I've actually caused thousands of deaths, but still. Okay. I didn't reply. I didn't want to get involved in that kind of nonsense. But Did you ever play in South Africa? No. Never? Not once? We were invited. Yes. Well, in the Steve Skate Band, when I was in Mexico, there was a group of fans, including actually led by the, one of the guys who'd been a soldier who'd heard the, the stuff, and he became a, a bit of a fan. Mm -hmm. And his, he had a group of people who pushed for us to play at, um, I think it was the 10th anniversary of the first free elections, to play, play his state um, concert, right? Yeah. And it, it became quite, the, the, the um, organisation seemed, they, they sent us pictures of the hotel and details of the hotel, they were going to book the flights. Then one day I got this, this strange email saying, um, oh, that, I've told you this, have you gotten, that's, who's this Argentinian? Do you know? um, uh, Gato Barbieri, maybe? Yes, he said, was Gato Barbieri ever in Latin Quarter? <laughs> and I, I said, no, I'm not, no, I, I didn't know who Gato Barbieri was, so I, I looked it up, and, yeah. okay, he's an Argentinian Jazz musician, a pianist, I think, or, or saxophonist. Sax saxophonist, a trumpet, Richard. Yeah, one of them. I think I thought it's trumpet. It doesn't matter. Okay. He's a jazz so um, I said no, and they they said, but uh, uh, has he ever played with you? I said, I've never heard of him actually. <laughs> and then they said, could you? Could, do you think you could maybe get together and play with him on this on this tour? I'm saying, well, you know, Argentina, Mexico is not exactly, you know, no. This is a nonsense suggestion. And what had happened was that the, the cultural minister of this particular state, I think it's Nepal, Nepal, Natal, sorry, had agreed to Latin Quarter playing at this festival mm. because he thought he, he'd been in, in Germany once and heard Gatto Barbieri and bought his album called From the Latin Quarter. So he thought when he agreed to Latin Quarter playing that he was, he was booking Gatto Barbieri. <laughs> So all these, all these, uh, you know, the, the hotel had to be, you know, unbooked. They never bought the tickets and we never played. I hate Gatto Barbieri. <laughs> Gatto, if you ever listen to this, I think he's died, actually. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, so no, we never played. We, I was very excited and we never played. Actually, Yo-Yo, if Yo-Yo boys had ever listened to this, he did promise once to organise a trip, didn't he? But he didn't, Yo, thank you very much. Okay. Be, I'd love to. Talking of Africa, no rope is on his time. Let's continue with that song. Your guns can fire and your prisons fill and your yards of rope for hanging still. Okay, old man, you can boast about the gun that's by your bed. Old man, you can tell me how you're good for all your kaffirs yet. Freedom don't come easy, don't come bloodless, don't come fast. But in the hearts of the countless people, no past laws gonna stop us past. So this being an account of uh, apartheid in South Africa. You've got a, a character in the middle of this song. It's an old African guy. Afrikaans, yeah. Afrikaans. Well, it's, I was hitchhiking and I got picked up by a couple who, um, one of them was South African, I can't remember which one, and 
um, and they they just come back from South Africa, and and they were telling me about this guy they were appalled i think it was, it was someone's father one of the father and they were kind of appalled and they said about he's 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 got this gun by his bed mm. all right so i just remembered that an old white afrikaans farmer with a gun by his bed because you know and then i, re I read this book in, in which i found the the phrase there's no rope as long as time yes and so that you know the thing came together that so the, yeah that, that's that's how um yeah, there you go. I mean, that's this, that's this, and and also the, I think this was written. This is the I think the only song I wrote on an acoustic guitar because mm. I I everything been written on on um, on keyboards really yeah. modern times probably. But there's a lot of keyboards in 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 all those other songs and this, and I've been listening to Bruce Springsteen actually, and I thought why don't I just write something with some basic kind of guitar chords? So I, I did, okay. uh, and that, um, and there is a story we have to tell because of course this song. Was played to Nelson Mandela. It was a few years ago. By a, how do you know? By a fan, a guy called Greg Levine, who was used to help to organise Mandela's transport when he was going around the place. And he, he's in South Africa. And he came to a gig that, that the three of us were playing in in London. And he came up and said, "I'd like to introduce myself." Um, you were there, actually. Michael was there, <clears throat> and said that he, he once had. Um, he's a big fan, blah blah blah, and he he actually played Nelson Mandela, the the song, and he, he said to look, I'm not bullshitting you. I mean, and he showed his pictures of him and Clinton actually, and, and Mandela. He said honestly, I'm I, you know, and, and he actually referred to Nelson Mandela by his African name, so you know, he seemed pretty familiar with him. Mm -hmm. And then he said, you know, I said, I thought, I, think, oh, I wonder what he thought about it. So I said, you know, so what did he what did he think? He just said, oh, you you print. It wasn't me actually. It was Carol. Said, oh, you, she pronounced the word kaffir wrong. <laughs> um, so that's all he said. Now, I would if when we sing this song, I'm not going to use that phrase. I'm going to I'm going to yeah. sing um, servant or something. Okay, because it's it's a, it's the kind of equivalent of the N word. All right, which kaffir, well, old it, man. It, you can tell me how you're good for all your servants yet. yet. Yeah. Servants yet. Yeah. It's going to be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, at the time, I mean, no one's complained about it. I, I don't think Nelson Mandela's complained. Well, he, he, yeah. he just spelt it. And it's in the context of apartheid. I mean, it is, but I wouldn't use the N word in the song, so yes. I wouldn't use that mm -hmm. word in the song. Of course. But, yeah. um, but also, that's that's one song that, that's wrong because the song implies that, that, that there's going to be a, a civil war in South Africa. You know, does, doesn't come bloodless. In fact, mm -hmm. it, it did come bloodless actually, thanks to Mandela. Yeah. So I was absolutely wrong. And this line, no rope as long as time, you got it from a book? Yeah, I got it from, it's written by um, uh, um, a guy from the, uh, the um, South African Communist Party. Yeah. So it's an, just a, it's such an incredible phrase, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, you get a line like that and there's a kind of, it's a song begging, begging to be written, I think. And why the context explain this to everyone who doesn't quite get no rope as long as time. This rope well, stands. The, the rope is, for is, what? Is, 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 is the is the is the hanging rope. Okay? Yeah, the so hanging the, rope. So the uh, no amount of oppression is going to stop freedom. Now, actually, I'm not sure it's true to be honest with you, but nevertheless, it's a strong idea that ultimately people will overcome oppression and tyranny. But is it true? Discuss. Discuss.
South Africa has always been in the focus of Latin Quarter songs, especially songs such as Radio Africa or No Rope As Long As Time. So at the end of this episode, we will have to hear from Yo-Yo Baez, a very renowned musician who was the bass player on several Latin Quarter albums He was the bass player on several tours. He will be with the band on the upcoming tour and also live album. Yo-Yo grew up in South Africa during those politically charged times and he's joining us now on the phone. That's where you as a young man still discovered the Modern Times album in Cape Town, in South Africa. How did you get hold of it at the time? Well, strangely enough, it, it was available. I, I had a, a, some a close friends that used to work for a, a, a music a retail shop called Musica, and um, they actually loved the album. And, and I had to chat to my friend when I was there recently, and, and they made a point of playing it in the shop as much as possible because they, they loved the, the concept and, and the, you know, all the stuff involved. Um, and they used to get quite a good response. <laughs> um, but I, I, I didn't hear it from them because this is a little bit later on. My older brother... Um, Andre, he actually had a copy of it, and uh, I was a teenager, and I used to, as you do, listen to your brother's records because they were they were there, and this yep. one sort of stood out. <laughs> and I remember hearing um, Radio Africa and just loving the the, the bass melody of it. But I only just started playing bass then; it was really early days. But yeah. I remember that, and I also remember No Rope as Long as Time because this the sentiment and this the lyric it's such a strong, powerful lyric. And it, um, that stood out for me. And um, all these years later, I, I moved to London in 2001, and I ended up playing with him, <laughs> touring and doing two albums and getting to know them really well and playing those songs that I'd, I'd heard when I was a teenager. How old were you when you discovered the album? I was 15. 15 at yeah. the time. So you got the album from your brother. Yeah. Now, Steve mentioned you were sort of listening to the album Under the Blanket. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> well, I, I did listen to it a lot. You know, it's, uh, when you're that age, you, you, you tend to get infatuated with stuff. And I, I, I really liked that album. It was something that just uh, I listened to a lot. So there were songs about mm. Africa, about South Africa. Yeah. Now, you, as a 15-year-old, what did these lyrics, these well, probably unusual lyrics coming from the UK, what yeah. did they mean to you at the time? Well, they did mean things to me because there was a lot of political upheaval happening at the time. Um, it wasn't all uh, under the surface, as, as some people might have yeah. thought it was. Um, and especially being in Cape Town, um, Cape Town was always a hotbed of dissidents <laughs> with yes. universities like the University of Cape Town, UCT, and uh, the University of the Western Cape, UWC. The students were always very active. And at the time, there was, it, there was always uh, d demonstrations going on and riots and tear gassing and bits and pieces like that. Because apart from the apartheid, there was also a, a border war happening, which had been going on for, for 20 years. And they had a conscription campaign where you know, all young, young males just, just leaving school had to go and fight, fight a war that they didn't really want to go fight. It was yeah. like South Africa's Vietnam. So there was a lot of political stuff like that happening. And um, I mean, the, the, and it was insidious as mm. well because the police were a bit like the, the Stasi. <laughs> there, there's this, I've, I've got friends that they, they had um, guys in their class in the university that, that were undercover policemen pretending to be students so they could try and catch out the, you know, the students that were too liberal or, or sort of too communist or part of, part of something that wasn't you know, what it should be. 
So there was a lot of that, that kind of thing happening. And um, I think just having access to music that's sort of speaking to, to the, the way people thought was, was what it was all about. You know, you, um, having talk someone singing about racism. And I mean, you had bands like uh, Jaluka and the, the band Bright Blue. I don't know if you know about them. Um, they, no, they have, I haven't heard of it. There's the, the anthem they've got called Weeping, which is probably the most famous um, uh, um oppression song ever um it, yeah. it, it's, it's done very well i actually ended up playing in a band with them with them for, for quite a few years um so there was a lot of movements happening you know, anti-apartheid yeah. anti-conscription and and it, it all ended in 1990 but you know it was this is you know in the middle of it yeah. to what extent were you part of this movement i mean we have this politically highly charged time there you being a 15 year old yeah. a teenager yeah. to what extent were you Involved, uh, just uh, just more awareness because I was, you know, obviously still yeah. young and at school. But my my oldest brother was had had been conscripted into the army and he he'd, he'd gone to, to do a bit of fighting. And then my other brother had to go as well and he got kicked out. Um, and I had older friends and I'd started playing music a little bit later on. I started playing music with all the different musicians in the area, whatever yeah. race and type. It wasn't music's a universal language, so I ended up doing all sorts of music with, with all sorts of different people. And and that's that's how I sort of got to to do what I do, just by just in, involving myself with as many people as possible musically. Yeah. So yeah. were there several like uh, friends or people you knew who were discovering the album Modern Times at the time? Or was it just basically you and your brother and the record shop, of course, that you mentioned? The, the record shop and me and my brother mainly, but later yeah, on, okay. it, it, so many friends of mine know Latin Quarter. I mean, they found out I was playing with him. They were like over the moon. <laughs> it's, and they always said to me, "When are you guys going to come play in South Africa?" I was like, "Well, it's, just, it's not up to me. It's, it's quite a, a long, involved process to get a band come out, come all the way out there and, and play." But it's, it's, it was a, you know, it definitely okay. was on the on the awareness level. Thank you for sharing some of your memories, <laughs> uh, early memories. I'll see you in Germany then. Fantastic. In April. Thank you so much. Lovely. Yo, yo, boys. Cheers. Do join us for part three of our podcast. We'll be talking about songs such as Eddie, Toulouse or America for Beginners. One thing I, I remember it was us all just lying in the studio on the floor. It's America for whispering as far yeah, yeah. as ethereal as we could possibly be.